All right, we're looking at the Gospel of Luke. I always like to get right into the text, but there are some things, some preliminaries, if you want to call them that, that we need to cover before we get into the text that I believe will help us get more out of the text. So that's what this worksheet is all about tonight. We're looking at some preliminaries. Jesus called his message the blank. He called it the gospel, G-O-S-P-E-L. And there are a couple of places in the gospels where he himself mentions his message as the gospel. And that word in parentheses, I'm trying to spell that out in English letters. It's a Greek word, euangelion, that's how I would pronounce it. And he called it the gospel quoting from Isaiah 61. And if you want to look at Luke chapter 4, hey, we're getting right into the text. This is in his hometown. Verse 16, Luke 4, 16. When he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as it was his custom... He entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. What was his custom? Go to the synagogue on Sabbath. That was his custom. The book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and he opened the book and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Now that first line there of verse 18, because he anointed me to preach the gospel, that's the word euangelion. Isaiah, 700 years earlier, talking about the Messiah coming, said this Messiah is going to preach the euangelion. That's not the word Isaiah used because he wasn't Greek. But that's the word that Luke translates the Hebrew with here, euangelion. Good news is what it means, and that's the next line. Not the next line, that's that's the next paragraph. And so he finishes up this quote, and he sits down. It's interesting, too. This isn't in the worksheet. This is the first time an attempt is going to be made on his life. And where is he? He's in Nazareth, where he was brought up. And he reads from Isaiah 61, and and he tells them, This day the scripture is fulfilled in your ears. That's verse 21. And at first all were speaking well of him there in verse 22 and wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. And they were saying, is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, and then he told them about the the Syrophoenician widow and about Naaman. Remember we talked about Naaman? I think John preached a sermon about Naaman not long ago. And he said that these people were not Jews, but God did great things for them, even though there were many like them in Judea. And for that, they became so angry that, verse 28, they were filled with rage as they heard these things. They got up and drove him out of the city, led him to the brow of the hill on which their city had been built in order to throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went his way. So this is his hometown. And he's saying, I've been anointed to preach the gospel. And for that message, (laughs) the truth of the matter is, he is the Messiah. And they're going to kill him for that. And this sort of set the standard by which he would be seen 
by many of the Jews from here on out, regardless of all the things that he did. All right. Still in that first section there, Jesus called his message the gospel, quoting from Isaiah 61, which Luke records at 4, 16 and 19. And then again to answer, and anybody skip ahead and look up chapter 7. He's answering John's disciples. Remember when John was arrested, he got some of his disciples and he said, I want you to go ask Jesus, is he really the one? And so they went to Jesus. And well, let's read his response in chapter 7. See, we're getting into the text. I know, we're jumping ahead. It's all right. I don't know of any law against that. Chapter 7 of verse 18. The disciples of John reported to him about all these things. Summoning two of his disciples, John sent them to the Lord saying, Are you the expected one or do we look for someone else? When the men came to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you to ask, Are you the expected one or do we look for someone else? At that very time, he cured many of the diseases and afflictions and evil spirits, and he gave sight to many who were blind. And I don't know if that's happened prior. I mean, it, it's been happening, but I don't know if this that Luke is talking about has happened prior to these guys coming or if it happened while they were there. But then it says in verse 22, he answered and said to them, go and report to John what you have seen and heard. It sounds to me like he's doing it while they are there. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have what preached to them? The gospel, which is the euangelion, and euangelion simply means good news. So Isaiah was prophesying about the good news being preached, and it was all about the Messiah. Jesus comes and he says, I'm, I'm fulfilling what Isaiah said about preaching the good news. And you go tell John, this is one of the ways he can know I am the Messiah because I'm preaching the good news, the euangelion, that Isaiah had prophesied. So the second paragraph in our worksheet, the Greek word translated gospel literally means good news. Using letters from our alphabet, we would spell it something like euangelion, from which we get our word. What would you guess we would get our word? What word would we get? Evangelize. Or evangelism. But I put evangelize because I wanted it to go properly with the next line. It is interesting that a word that was initially a blank has become a blank. Any English majors in here? It was originally a noun. Good news. That's a noun. But it became a verb. And that happened because Jesus told us, you go tell everybody the good news. And so we call it good newsing or evangelizing or gospeling. We don't call it gospeling, do we? We don't call it good newsing, do we? What do we call it? Evangelizing. Now what happens, though, in your mind... <clears throat> when somebody said, we need to do more evangelism. I don't know how to do that. And I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but I think a lot of people feel that way. When the word evangelism comes up, it's, oh, that's, we're not qualified. Now, here's the deal about that. In the first place, you would never let anybody else tell you you were not qualified. If I got up to preach and said, I don't want anybody else telling you about, about, about Jesus because you're not qualified, you'll mess it up. You would probably fire me, and you should. 
Because what does it mean to evangelize? Based on the definition of the word, you're telling people the good news. What's the good news? Do you have any good news about Jesus in your life? Does Jesus mean anything to you? Has your life benefited because of Jesus Christ? Take stock. That's what we need to be doing all the time is taking stock of what God has done for us and what we can talk to other people about that might encourage them and give them hope. Look at me. Look at what a mess I am, and yet I have hope in Jesus Christ. And I lay down every night with my head on my pillow in peace. There's so many things we could talk about with regard to Jesus Christ that don't involve, somebody used the word today, theology. Don't tell anybody, but if you understand Jesus well enough that you lay down at night with a peaceful heart, you know all the theology you need to know. And you can talk to somebody about that. You can, you can share that good news. Just like you would share that good news if a new Brahms opened up closer to your house. You would not hesitate. Okay. Okay, Luke 7, 23. Blessed is he who does not take offense at me. Who took offense at Jesus? One of the things that came up when, when John was studying with us about Herod, what did it say about Herod when he learned that Jesus had been born? Herod was troubled. And who else? All Jerusalem with him. And why would that happen? Because if, if, if Herod's up, if Herod, not Harold, Harold and Herod, that's, they're two very different guys. If Herod was upset, that means somebody's going to get hurt. Things are not going to be pleasant. It's not going to be a good time. That's like when you go home and mama's mad. Oh, maybe I'll go back wherever I was because if mama's mad, it's going to change the way things are in the house. People are offended at Jesus. People are still offended at Jesus. This is why we... We struggle with this idea of telling people about Jesus because we know people get offended. And I, <clears throat> I don't mean to make an unreal parallel. I believe I've talked about this before, but I think it's worthy of talking about again. If you do find a new Brahms and you want to tell somebody about it, well, fantastic, because telling somebody about a Brahms doesn't obligate them to do anything. But you know in your mind if you tell people about Jesus, it comes with an obligation. It's one of the things about these Gospels. You start reading the Bible. You start reading the Gospels especially because they're about Jesus. These words are going to obligate you. They're going to enlighten you. They're going to encourage you. They're going to give you hope. They're going to tell you the truth about the way everything actually is. But they're also going to obligate you. And we don't like that because we want to do things our own way. And we don't want to feel an obligation to do something somebody else's way. Even if it's God. Even if it's God. So... People are offended at Jesus. What did we just read in his own hometown? What did they do? They drove him to the edge of a cliff because they were going to throw him off. Hometown boy. How much trouble do you think Jesus had caused in his growing up years? Well, not the kind of trouble we might normally think a young man would cause. So I don't know if that's enough of an address, but people are still offended at Jesus. Mm-hmm. 
Well, people are objective about everything except Jesus. If, if, you, if somebody says, man, my car's running rough, and, and you know something about cars, and, well, let me look, look under the hood, and you take a look under the hood, and, oh, it's, uh, you got a, you got a broken spark plug wire. You wouldn't tell them that expecting them to get upset at you because that's what they're wanting you to tell. Tell me the truth about what's wrong with my car. You got a broken spark plug wire. Oh, we can fix that. But if you tell somebody, hey, I, I know you're messing around on your wife or your husband. You've got to be equal time here. That's not good. That's going to hurt you. going to hurt your family. You might not get the same response as if you tell somebody that their spark plug wire is broke. If you tell somebody you, you're going to you're going to be lost eternally without Jesus Christ. It's going to be a different response. This, this is heavy stuff. <clears throat> Marshall Keeble. I don't know if you've heard of Marshall Keeble. He's an old-time gospel preacher. Somebody asked him why he doesn't jump around like other people in religion do. And he said, gospel is heavy. You don't jump around with something heavy. Jesus talked about the weightier things of the law. But I digress. Isn't that an awful statement? We're talking about the weightier things of the law, and that's a digression. Oh, well. Here we are. Luke does not call his record a gospel, but simply writes the following. And this is a quote of the first four verses. New American Standard, 95 version. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were blank, blank to us. Anybody looking at the text to see what should be filled in the blank? Just as they were handed down. What do you hand down to somebody else? Things of significance. You hand down what's of significance. If it's not of significance, you throw it away. But if you hand it down, it's because it's important. And, and you're giving somebody responsibility for it. We've had it now. We want you to have it. And you do with it what should be done. Handed down to us by those who from the beginning were blanks. Text says eyewitnesses. Luke is saying, I'm writing these things down, but I got these things from eyewitnesses. And those who were with Jesus, they handed these things down, and these eyewitnesses has, has given me this information. They were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, and it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent theophysists. What's he saying? I'm writing this record down. And he's being careful to give a chronology in consecutive order. This happened, and this happened, and this happened, and this happened. That seems to be what he is saying. And I didn't mean to pass over it, but the first line, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account. This gospel, we'll talk about it here in a little bit, is probably written in the early 60s. But when was the church established? About 33 A.D. Now think about that. What's the math? How many years is 33 A.D. from 60? That's, that's a number of years. Well, what were they using to convert the world, which is what they were doing, turning things upside down? The apostles were. <clears throat> Mm -hmm. The apostles were inspired. They could lay their hands on somebody and they could do the miraculous and speak. But 
But there was no... Today, we use the Bible. We go to people and we say, now here, this is what the Bible says. And, and if people respect the authority of the scriptures, then, then there's a record of authority for them. And that still works to some degree in our culture, thankfully. Right. No, no, you're, you're right. But I'm talking about the guy on the street. Somebody brings word to you. You're, you're living in some little town, Podunkville, uh, wherever it might be, Macedonia. And somebody tells you about Jesus and you go, you know, that, that has a ring of truth to it. And I, I've heard other people talk about Jesus. And I know, I know some Jewish people and they've been looking for their Messiah. And this sounds like him. I put my faith in Jesus. So what do I do now? And what would people tell them? They would tell them what they remembered. They might have written down some notes if they had been in. What do you think was happening at Jerusalem? Why were people selling things in Acts chapter 2 so that those who had come for the Feast of Pentecost could stay longer while they were learning from the apostles? Don't you think they wrote a few things down? So Luke is saying a lot of people have, have written these things down, but I'm, I'm going to do that as well, and I'm going to take... Uh, care to hear from the eyewitnesses and those who have handed these things down to us. And I'm going to make this record chronological, so it's, it's going to be very detailed. That's what the Holy Spirit is having Luke to write in the first four verses, what we call the first four verses of this gospel. So that this guy named Theophilus, and I think it was a guy, it may not have been a guy, but I think it was a guy, I think it was an individual, you can discuss that all you want. We really don't know. So that Theophilus may know the exact truth about the things you've been taught. So Theophilus has learned about Jesus, and Luke is writing these down, things, these, these things down so he can read this account and know you, you've learned the exact truth. In Mike's class on Jude, why did Jude write? He, he's writing that brief tome, that little letter about the faith once delivered. And that's what Luke is doing. He's writing these things out in order. After writing the gospel, Luke authored, what did he write after Luke? Wrote the book of Acts. Essentially as a sequel or follow-up. I hate to use the word sequel because it sounds like some kind of a movie thing. Oh yeah, there's a sequel. Have you seen the sequel? Well, if you've read Luke, read Acts. It's a history that follows after the gospel. The record of Acts describes how Jesus' work was brought to full fruition by his apostles, spreading the good news about his blank, blank, and blank. Death, burial, and resurrection. When you read through Acts, every sermon that Jesus' apostles and ministers preach is this. It's the death, burial, and resurrection. There might be some history leading up to it, but when they get down to it, that's the crux of the matter, the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Do you know about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ? Yes, you do. So you can tell people the good news. Jesus rose so you and I can rise. You stand at a cemetery and you're looking down at that ground. You know, man, there's a box down there with somebody in it. That's a scary thought when you're a kid. And when somebody tells you, oh... You won't be down there. You'll be with the Lord. And the Lord is way up in heaven. And on the resurrection day, that body that you're not in anymore, he's going to regenerate. 
And it's going to be resurrected somehow to glory. Not gory like in the scary movies, but to glory. And that's why this is such important work. And Luke wrote about these guys spreading this death, burial, and resurrection message in the, in the world. And the church was established. People were converted. And I put in that note about Colossians chapter 1, verses 6 and 23, which I didn't space properly. Because that's where Paul says this gospel was preached in the whole world. He, he says it twice. Colossians 1, 6 and 1, 23. He says the, whole, the gospel preached in the whole world. Puts it down twice for us. And that immediately resulted in the establishment of the blank in Jerusalem, the church. So the church is established in Jerusalem. All right, Acts also records that Luke was a, and there's a hyphenated word, co-worker. Luke was a co-worker with the Apostle Paul. And you read that, I've got references there for you, Acts 16, Acts 20, Acts 21, Acts 27. Now it doesn't say Luke was a co-worker, but we know Luke wrote Acts. And what is what pronoun is Luke using throughout Paul's journeys at this point. We set sail. We did this. We landed here. We went up there. We did that. So Luke is including himself in this record of Paul's travels that he's giving. And Paul himself will later mention Luke by name in Colossians and in 2 Timothy and in Philemon. And in Colossians chapter 4 and verse 14, he mentions Luke as both a blank and blank. What was Luke? He was a physician. And Paul mentions him as that, but he also uses a word of endearment, a term of endearment. Beloved. The beloved physician. Luke, the beloved physician. Now, well, let's go to Colossians 4 because there's something else I want to point out to you that, that I find very interesting. And it's not absolutely certain, but I think it's pretty pretty uh, reliable this is Colossians chapter 4 starting at verse let's see verse 10 Aristarchus my fellow prisoner sends you his greetings and also Barnabas cousin Mark about whom you received instructions if he comes to you welcome him and also Jesus who is called Justice These are the only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are from the, what? From the circumcision. In other words, these are the only guys who are part of the church who are of Jewish background. And they have proved to be an encouragement to me. Then he says in verse 12, Epaphras, who is one of your number, a bond slave of Jesus Christ, sends you his greetings, always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers, that you may stand perfect and fully assured in all the will of God. For I testify for him that he has a deep concern for you and for those who are in Laodicea and Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, sends you his greetings and also Demas. So where does Luke fall in this identity line here? He's, he's a Gentile. Do you know any other Gentiles who are writers of the New Testament documents? I think Luke is the only one. He's the only one that I know of. Are there others I've overlooked? Interesting, isn't it? 
So that's just an extra note. You can write that into the sideline. The date of the writing, we're down to that. Luke concludes Acts with Paul in, where does, where does Acts finish up with Paul in? Where, where is he when Acts finishes? He's in Rome. He's in Rome. He's wanted to go to Rome and he's got himself in Rome. And that leads the reader to believe that Paul was still blank at the completion of Acts. Still alive. Paul's death can be dated to A.D. 64. That's during Nero's persecution. Thus, the gospel being completed before Acts would likely have been finished sometime before this date. And the guess probably is around the early 60s, but nobody knows for sure. Why four gospels? The quick answer is, I don't know. Why don't I know? God hasn't said why four Gospels? But here's some things to think about. Holy Spirit's not revealed the reason to us, but none should be needed. There's no more important story to be told. And whereas the law of Moses required blank or blank witnesses to establish truth, two or three, God has provided even a fourth clear message of his son's life among us, including his work and teaching. I don't know if that has anything to do with the reason there are four Gospels. But but that's the truth. Here's another thing, this next paragraph, where some are saying maybe this is why there are four. Some postulate, and with good reason, that Matthew's gospel is aimed at a blank audience. Jewish. Matthew's gospel seems to be aimed at a Jewish audience. Has that flavor. Mark's writing seems for a reader of blank origin. Anybody? Roman? Roman origin? Everything's happening immediately and fast, and, and Mark, Mark gets right in there with the things that Jesus is doing and the power of his work. He doesn't talk anything about the prophecies or about the birth and none of that stuff. He gets right to the meat of the thing. And I'm not saying that's the best way to do it, but that, that's the way to do it, perhaps, if you want to appeal to somebody who had a Roman background. He's the only gospel writer who begins his work calling it a gospel. He's the only one that does that. John focused on the, those of you who were in the John class, what did John focus on the whole time? Signs. Signs. He focused on the signs that led people to believe that Jesus was the Son of God. They proved his identity. Luke's writing is addressed to one named Theophilus and seems attuned especially for a, and I would put there, a reasoning mind. This is just my, my wording, my supposed so. A reasoning mind, such as blank culture would appreciate. Greek. We've left out the Greek so far, but now that we've got Luke, hey, this will appeal to people who have that kind of a thought process. What was Paul doing up on the Areopagus, up on the uh, the Mars Hill in Acts chapter 17? Why did they take him up to Mars Hill? He was telling them the gospel, and they hadn't heard that before. And Luke recorded there. These people love to sit around just talking about this kind of stuff all the time. That's what the Greeks did. If I ask you to name some famous ancient philosophers, where are they going to come from? Most of them are going to be from Greece. That's the ones we think about anyway. Not all philosophers were from Greece. But so many things along those lines did come from Greece. If you ask a Greek person, everything came from Greece. Do you remember that? Remember that line in everybody see uh, my big fat Greek wedding? 
The Greek dad says, give me any word and I'll show how it came from the Greek language. That's, you got to look that up sometime. It's pretty funny. And that's kind of the way they think about it too. Okay, they were, it seems, the Greeks, caught up in the search for the blank blank, the perfect man, and Jesus was that man. You remember all those Greek statues of fat people? You don't, do you? Because they didn't make any of fat people that I know of. All the Greek statues, man, if you were a man back then, you, you were handsome. You were finely fashioned. If you were a woman, whoo boy. You were good looking, according to the Greeks, because all their artwork reflected that kind of a thing. It's interesting, too. If you ever visit, and this is not to to denigrate or make fun or mock or anything, but if you ever visit, for example, the the Mormon tabernacle in Salt Lake City, you're going to see Mormon artwork, and it's all going to be well-muscled men, even if they're 90 years old. They're going to look like they just came out of the gym. Walking next to Arnold Schwarzenegger, beautiful women, all finely formed and appealing to the eye. That's what I saw uh, for Mormon artwork. I guess all the people that lived back in ancient times were just beautiful people. What did Jesus look like according to Isaiah? Like a dried root out of dry ground. There wasn't anything about him, Isaiah said, that would attract you, that nothing physically, fleshly appealing. But Luke writes in such a way that a reasoning mind, if they were looking for somebody perfect, they would find it in Jesus. And they wouldn't find it because Luke was describing what Jesus looked like. He was describing what Jesus did, how he thought, how he reasoned, how he dealt with people who were uh, contradicting. It was beautiful and all, all the gospel writers do that to some extent but it seems like Luke this is his forte so uh, last line with these things in mind let us study the good doctor's detailed picture of the great physician's work while among men any any observations about any of this material we've covered so far Anyone, if it's delivered to them, they couldn't understand. 
Right. That's the idea of the message. Get it out to everybody and get it to everybody in a way they can explain it. What, how does Matthew start his gospel? He doesn't call it a gospel, but as Matthew begins, what's the first thing you see in Matthew? Genealogy. Why would you see that in Matthew's gospel? Who would that have been important to? Jewish people. And you've got Abraham right there. It goes down to David. Well, how does Mark start his? Mark, we'll just go to Mark and see what the first line says. It's the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it's written in Isaiah the prophet. Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who's going to prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. You can almost hear the trumpets. The Messiah is here. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea was going out to him for all the Jerusalem and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River confessing their sins. John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and his diet was locusts and wild honey. Who wouldn't be impressed with that? This guy is the one God sent. God didn't send a hundred prophets. He sent one prophet and this was the guy. And he was preaching and saying, after me, one's coming who is mightier than I, and I'm not fit to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I'm baptizing you with water, but what's Jesus going to do? He's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. It's like, how many of you are old enough to remember seeing Star Wars for the first time? You're sitting in that theater and the screen's up there. Boom, here comes this big monster spaceship. Bam, 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 there's fight. Oh, this is the way to start a movie. I love that. That's what Mark is doing. Because there are some that would, they see this, they okay, that appeals to me. How does, how does John start his gospel? In the beginning was the Word. What about that Word? The Word was with God, and the Word was God. And everything... That was made was made by this word. And you go back to Genesis, and that's exactly what Genesis says. God said, what's the first thing he said, speaking it into existence? Let there be light. And John starts his gospel talking about Jesus, the light, who is the life of men, or the life who is the light of men. And so we've got these four different approaches. And Luke starts out telling the reader, all right, I wasn't an eyewitness, but I've talked to the eyewitnesses. And I know a lot of people have written out this message before, but I'm taking pains to write it out based on what the eyewitnesses say and those who have handed this information down so that whoever reads this, Theophilus or anybody else, can know the exact truth. Now, there are some people for whom that message is going to have a great appeal. When they read that, they're going to say, oh, yeah, that's what I want to know. I want to know the exact truth. Even if I don't believe it, I want to know that whatever they're telling me, they're saying this is what's been researched to be the exact truth. So four Gospels. God knows why there are four. But God doesn't overdo things, and he doesn't underdo things. He does everything just perfectly right. And so we've got the Gospels we need. And isn't it interesting that one of those Gospels is apparently written by a Gentile. Because the Messiah, a very Jewish term, was written or was, was coming for everybody. It wasn't just for the Jews. And this is what Paul clears up so well 
in, in the book of Romans. Finally, when he gets to the olive tree, what happens with the olive tree? Some of the natural branches are cut off because of unbelief. And other branches that are not of the regular olive tree are grafted in because they do believe. It's such a beautiful picture. And some of those branches are us. Mike. What it appeals, you know, the, the kind of mind or situation that appeals. And uh, it's interesting that Luke, you know, uh, goes out of his way in his introduction to say, I've gathered this, the information that's floating around more or less, and I've decided to put it down, you know, in mm-hmm. an organized uh, fashion, you know. And uh, that appeals to the you know, to the engineer mind, you know what I mean? Right. Just give me the facts and, you know, 1A, B, C, D, you know what I'm saying? It appeals to that kind of mind, which uh, you mentioned John before. The mind, the way John starts his gospel, appeals to a completely different mindset. So uh, just just adding more to what you've right. said, especially about Luke, you know. What if, what if the only painter in history was Picasso? Now, I have to ask, is that art? What is art? Art is, is what appeals to you. I remember the first time I, I heard, I was, I was very young, but I heard somebody refer to a country western singer as an artist. What? They don't paint no pictures. Because that's what an artist was, somebody who paints pictures or somebody who creates a sculpture. But... Art is something that we need a lot of different kinds of it because you don't even have the same. Do anybody, any of you guys have the same picture in every room of your house? I mean, you might have different pictures of family members, but you don't even have the same picture of the same person. And you've got different pictures in different situations because you, you want something that's different. And we want that too. I'll tell you something you can study talking about the Gospels. I've done this and it's fascinating and it's interesting and it's very um, uh, revealing. Go to all four Gospel accounts of the resurrection and try to put things down in order based on what they say. You can do it. I've done it. And you go back and you read and it makes perfect sense. But at a, a cursory reading... It looks like there's that doesn't that doesn't jive with this, and then you read it and you you compare it. Care, oh, it, oh, it does jive. I can see why he would say that. Now that could be true without it being said like this. He says it differently, but it doesn't contradict. It all dovetails together, and I have to wonder to myself because the question arises in my mind: Why would God do it that way? The Hebrew writer said in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, that God rewards somebody. Who does he reward? Those who diligently seek him. If you know there's a God, if, and you should, what does Paul write in the first chapter of Romans? He says, if you're an atheist, there's no excuse because you can see that there's a God just by looking at the creation. 
Everything around us screams out for a creator. And if there's a creator, well, all right, how do I find this creator? That's what Paul talked about on Mars Hill. He used the term, well, in our English vernacular, he used the word grope is how it's translated in in some, I, I like that word, groping after God, searching, trying to find him. And what did Paul say? He's not far from any one of us. Why? Because in him we live and move and we have our very being. And it's, it's 2024. And why are we here tonight? Because you're still trying to find God. You've found him, but you want to find more. You want to know more. You want to have more. You want to be more. You, want there, you know there's more to be seen and more to be heard and more to be known. So you're here. We're here because God first loved us. Because what now? Yes, we love him because he first loved us. And we know that's right. There's, There's something about us that naturally tells us there is someone higher. When when archaeologists start digging, and not just archaeologists, but uh, what are the people who study human history? What's that? There's a word for them. Anyway, people who look for human history. They know they found human artifacts when they find items that indicate something is being worshipped. Because people worship by nature. Every ancient culture had a god or gods. Remember studying the Chinese? The, the languages were confused at Babylon by the... Has it been one bell or two? Just one. Okay. Oh, yeah, 758. El Shaddai. What language does that come from? Well, that's Hebrew. So the languages are confused in Genesis chapter 11. The Chinese go to the east and they settle. And they are at that point monotheistic. And their god is called Shangdi. El Shaddai, Shangdi. Jesus, Jesus. In the Greek, it's Iesus. So you see how the god of the Chinese initially was very likely the god of the Bible, El Shaddai. And you start looking at Chinese characters and you're going to find out that the Chinese characters tell the Bible story of creation and the flood and Adam and Eve and the garden and the fall and Abel offering sacrifice of a sheep, blood sacrifice. All that stuff is in the Chinese characters because the history of the world is God's history. And it all starts in Genesis chapter 1. And Luke is telling us this gospel saying... All of this history has led up to this point where we now have the Son of God come in the flesh to be our our Savior. And you need to believe in him. And let me tell you in order what Jesus has done and what Jesus has said. That is what Luke is doing with this gospel. Any questions? Observations? Yes, Becky. In the perfection of the Gospels. In the correction? The perfection. Oh, the perfection, yes. Um, I find it uh, the story that is captured in all four Gospels is a different perspective. Just like all of us learn differently, all of us remember differently. Um, but it is the good news, the Gospel. It is the necessary information for us to be saved, presented that anybody could grasp it. Right. Whether you're an engineer, thinking type of person or somebody who wants to jump into a Star Wars movie, it's all there for you. Right. 
Now, I could ask the question, are there anything, are, are there things in the Bible you don't understand? And who would answer no to that? All of us have things we don't understand in the Bible. But when it comes to the salvation of your soul, the message is so clear. It's so stinking clear. I don't know if that's a Christian way to say it. But, but it communicates. It is so clear. Just read the second chapter of Acts. They had killed the Son of God. That's what they realized. And they said, what do we do? And Peter said, give it up. There's no hope for you. You're toast. No, what did Peter say? He said, repent. Repent. And it's interesting. He doesn't say repent of your sins. He says repent. And the context there is they didn't believe in Jesus before. And now they realize they've killed him. And he says repent. I think he's telling them repent of not believing in Jesus as the Son of God. And once you believe in Jesus as the Son of God, what do you say to do? Be baptized in whose name? In Jesus' name, by the authority of Jesus, for what? For the remission of your sins. And then, if you understand everything perfectly, then maybe you can go to heaven later on. That's not the message. The message is put your faith in Jesus and be baptized in his name, and you will be forgiven of your sins, and he will put his Holy Spirit in you. That's what Jesus was talking to Nicodemus about in John chapter, chapter 3. But that's what Luke will talk about in, in his gospel as well. So anyway, i got to quit. i got to hush. Uh, next week, we'll get into to more of the text. Lord bless you. Thanks for coming.